0: You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. We're continuing our series, Malachi God's Answer to Our Wayward Hearts. And as Pastor Dalton shared uh, when we started this series, we can think of these four sermons in Malachi as part of a a bigger road trip uh, that we're on that started way back in March when we were in the book of Ephesians. And the destination of our trip is clarity in the gospel. That's where we want to get to. We want to know the gospel fully and clearly. And the best road trips have specific sites along the way that that you just can't pass by. And the book of Malachi is one of those sites. Before we go any further in our Ephesians series, we felt as a preaching team that we need to stop and just gaze at the wonders in Malachi and how the themes and truths of this Old Testament book help us to actually make sense of Ephesians and ultimately help us grow in our understanding of the gospel. One important Old Testament theme that shaped our time in Ephesians, and will continue to and will especially shape our sermon today, is the biblical covenant. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard us talk about this idea of a personal relationship with God. That can mean many different things in the Bible, like having God as your father or or teacher. But there is one particular way the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. And that's the idea of being in a covenant with God. In the biblical covenant, God makes promises to us, and in exchange, he asks us to fulfill certain commitments to show we are in covenant to him. In our passage today, Malachi points us forward to the gospel and how even when our wayward hearts question our commitment to God, God's answer is to always be committed to us. So let's stand as we read God's word, Please uh, follow along as I read. We'll be in Malachi chapter 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why, then, are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your covenant, or wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. The man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? This is the word of the Lord you may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us, your people. How in it we see what what you're after. You are after godly offspring. You are after us, your people, who have been redeemed by your son and who are growing in your own righteousness. Even though the grass withers and the flower fades, your word will stand forever. So as we meditate on this passage, we ask for your help. Would you open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things found in your word? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, imagine with me that you are thriving in your workplace. You love the work that you're doing. Doing your job is a delight rather than a duty. And best of all is your employer has given you a guaranteed three-year contract to stay at your company But suddenly, not long after you started working your dream job, your employer announces that your job has been made redundant by an advanced piece of artificial intelligence. This AI software can do the same work at the same level of quality for free. The circumstances of your job have drastically changed, and the delight you were experiencing feels like it was stripped away. You are unmotivated to work, so new job prospects vie for your attention. What do you do? You're under contract, but you're questioning your end of this commitment because your employer has changed the terms of the commitment, and this time it was to your detriment. So, do you stay committed? This kind of scenario happens to people all the time. Workplaces change, contracts change, and we move on from one commitment to the next in pursuit of the one thing that brings us the most delight. But this is not the way God founded his covenant or commitment with us. God's commitments last. They endure through any trial or circumstance in our lives. His commitments are always for our good, and the gospel shows the full extent of how good this commitment is. God's commitments are not like work contracts, which are so easily broken. Yet we see in our passage that we often treat them that way. But God doesn't terminate commitment with us. Instead, we see he is committed to thoroughly dealing with our sins, to show he is committed to maintaining his commitment with humanity. In fact, the good news is God sends himself as our guarantee we can always be part of this covenant commitment. Because, as, as you've seen here, our main point today is God is always committed to us even when we are not always committed to him. That's our main point this morning, and if you compare my main point with with Pastor Dalton's from last week, you'll find they are eerily similar. Well, this was not intentionally planned by us, um, by the two of us, and I think it was intentionally planned by God to show the significance of his commitment to us in Malachi and in the whole of Scripture. Pastor Dalton's main point was God remains committed to his promises even though his people remain corrupt. And while that passage applies, that that main point applies to us today, and and I really like it, uh, we're going to stick with my main point, okay? God is always committed to us, even when we are not always committed to Him. And we will celebrate um, God's commitment to us by learning, first, the commitment we were meant to keep. This will serve as our first point this morning. And this is the same commitment we do not keep. That will be our second point. And finally, We'll learn about this is the commitment Jesus keeps so that we can too. So let's look chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 to learn more about the commitment we were meant to keep. We see right off the bat in verse 5, the priest's commitment with God is all about receiving God's generous gifts and blessings of, of life and peace and responding with praise to God. Why does God do this? It's not because he is needy for people to worship him. Rather, it is to show us why he is worthy of our complete worship of him alone and why he is calling us to commit to worship him over anything else, which helps us to make sense of everything else, as we'll see. That's why these priests respond by fearing the Lord of the covenant and standing in awe of his name, because covenant worship shows our commitment to God. And we see two more things that are signs of our commitment in verses 6 and 7. When we are committed to God, we speak his true and right instruction, and we guard his knowledge. And where is this instruction and knowledge found? Well, for the priests of that time, the Old Testament, and for us today, the entire scriptures. Because God's character has no wrong about him, and his ways are always right. Therefore, he only gives us true and right instruction in his word. In himself. If we do not guard the knowledge of God, how can we expect to be his messengers when people come seeking us for instruction? And how will we be of any help uh, to turn many from their iniquity, to turn away from their wayward hearts? Some of you may be wondering Michael, these things sound nice praising God and, and helping one another but how do I know his instruction actually changes lives and promotes good? Well, God is very upfront about his good works in his word, his good word. He is all about life and peace among many other good things. That's why we value all of these pages right here in his word. God's word gives us boundaries for living as just and righteous people before him and categories to know how to respond when justice and evil are oppressing others. Just take out your phone And see how the algorithms running our social media streams keep the score. They show us the aftermath of bombs being dropped on people's homes or the sentencing of corrupt business leaders attempting to steal and embezzle money. And as Christians, this should trigger in our minds, the Bible says, do not murder and do not steal your neighbor's stuff. These laws from God go the distance. They flow from God's very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And God in the Bible shares these laws within the best love story of how he will rectify our world's wrongs and how he will do so through his commitment to us. Because of our commitment in verse 6, we can walk with God in peace and uprightness. Walking with God is having a relationship with him, which is what this commitment is all about. And if it hasn't been made clear to you yet, all of us commit to relationships And it is from our closest relationships that we derive our closest held beliefs. In her book, The Secular Creed, engaging five contemporary claims, author Rebecca McLaughlin compassionately examines the cultural beliefs of our time and answers each one with a conviction from the gospel of Jesus. Rebecca writes, On my drive to church, my kids and I pass home after home with yard signs that say, Black Lives Matter, Love is love. Women's rights are human rights. We are all immigrants. Diversity makes us stronger. Signs like this sketch out a statement of beliefs or secular creed. These beliefs center not on God, but on diversity, equality, and everyone's right to be themselves. To our ears, love across uh, racial and cultural differences, the equality of men and women, the idea that the poor, oppressed, and marginalized can make Truth claims on the rich and powerful sound like basic moral common sense, but they are not. These truths have come to us from God, and I'll add his word, including his boundaries for knowing him, knowing his love and making our relationship with him known to others. Rebecca continues, Behind these signs, you won't uncover a better basis for human equality and rights. You'll uncover an abyss that cannot even tell you what a human being is. Like cartoon characters running off a cliff, we may continue a short way before we realize that the ground has gone from underneath our feet. But it has gone. Without Christian beliefs about humanity and our world, the yard signs' claims are not worth the cardboard on which they are written. So, when we pass these signs, I tell my kids that in our house, we believe that black lives matter because they matter to Jesus. We believe that love or we don't believe that love is love, but that God is love and that he gives us glimpses of his love through his relationship with us. We believe that women's rights are human's rights because God made us male and female in his image. and For that same reason, we believe that babies in the womb have rights as well. And We treasure the sanctity of human life because God treasures us. He says, has not one God created us in verse 10? We believe God has a special concern for single mothers, orphans, and immigrants because God's word tells us so again and again, and we believe that diversity does indeed make us stronger because Jesus calls people from every tribe and tongue and nation to worship him alone as one body together. I love how Rebecca contrasts the boundaries of the secular beliefs or creed with the boundaries of Christian beliefs because every relationship needs some boundaries for there to be a relationship. Otherwise, what is there in the relationship to commit to? Don't think for a moment Christianity is just a list of rules for us to follow. You and I did not show up for a list this morning. Lists are helpful. There are a list of 10 commandments in the Bible, but they help form the boundaries of the relationship with our God so that it can be the best it can be. And as we learned from Rebecca, they offer the timeless truths that speak directly into our cultural moment. Our commitment with God means that we have the capital T truth to offer to ourselves when we're quick to forget and that we can offer to our neighbors down the street at Dickman Park because our neighbors have questions and they will seek answers. And God is committed to answering our questions with the greatest authority found in his word. Like the good priests in our passage, when we commit to our relationship with God, his mouth becomes our mouth, his lips ours. His instruction is our instruction, his message is our message that we see in verse 16, we guard ourselves in the spirit and do not be faithless. This is the commitment we were meant to keep. But as I alluded to earlier, this is also the commitment that we do not keep. The bad priests in our passage were supposed to be committed to God and his ways and to help others do the same, but they were not. And the same is true of us. God established boundaries which make up his good design for our commitment, but we don't live into that good design. Why? Because sin twists our following of God's boundaries as something we do to appease God rather than to enjoy him. We see in verses 2 and 3, the priests were supposed to follow the covenantal categories of worship, specifically the animal sacrificial system that atoned for their sins and the sins of the people, but they don't do this. They don't listen to the Lord. They don't take it to heart to give honor to his name. So God makes a curse against the priests for pawning off their defective animal offerings. There may be some of you who think God's curse is a hoax. You walked in here, you're hearing this, this curse. Maybe you think of it a spell from from like a fantasy novel, but we see that the curse is very real. We see in the Bible, God blesses some people and he curses others. And the curse is when God hands us over to the consequences of seizing our own blessing on our own terms. It's really important we know this because our consequence is death. One of the lies from our culture is the curse of death really isn't that bad. We are here And then we are gone, and there is nothing to worry about in between. We stifle the horror of suffering and the unknown of dying and don't know how to cope with the grief that they each are. Let me appeal to you that the curse is a felt experience. The other day, I was listening to some environmental scientists answer the question, in what year will the human population grow too large for the earth to sustain? Their answer was 1970. According to the research by the World Wildlife Fund, today, 2023, wild plants and animals are running out of spaces to live, and humanity is suffering from a vanishing wild. One of the scientists' studies conclude that in the past 50 years, the abundance of global wildlife has collapsed 69%. And one of the biggest contributors to this collapse is humans over-consuming, and the systems that support our consumption can't keep up. The world's problems may seem bigger than ourselves, but they remind me of a simple yet bigger problem still, and that is that we live under the curse of our own making, and we feel the curse in our everyday lives, in part because we struggle to trust in God. And so we hold back, and we take, and we take, and we don't give. We hold back to God. And we see in verse 11, these priests don't even give. the sanctuary of God. They don't even give to the place where he dwelled with humanity. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we know his spirit dwells in us, in our souls. They become a sanctuary God chooses to dwell in. But if we're being honest, there are times every day where we get into these, these little wars between our selfish side of us and the spirit in us. And our sinful selves try to hoard our offerings to God, and we give him our second best as we see in our passage, this is more than just hoarding our wealth or resources. I also think it points to a deeper issue of, of hoarding our time with God and even keeping our affections from him as if that's possible. I'm talking about those offerings that make up our side of the commitment. And this is a bigger and deeper problem than an ecological collapse. We need someone who can commit to always offer their best to God for us. Because in verse 3, God tells these priests exactly what he thinks of their offerings. They are dung to him. It gets more graphic when God visualizes what he will do with these dung-filled offerings. He will spread the dung on their faces. Because their offerings to God were like the insides or guts of a sick animal. So the priests will be taken away with them. Why such a visceral rebuke from God? Because these priests were supposed to be the example covenant keepers to God before all the people. And instead, they racked up a resume of sin that was even more visceral for the people to see. We see in verse 8, they caused many to stumble by their instruction. And so God, working through the people in verse 9, turns back on them. He uses the people to make them despised and abased before them all. And one question we sometimes ask here at River City is who will we be discipled by? We see the people are discipled by the priests. We see where that gets them. And so depending on the answer to our first question, the next is where are they leading you? Who are you discipled by and where are they leading you? Will we be like these priests who turn aside from the way of God and follow our wayward hearts? Look where that gets us, corrupting our covenant with God. And similarly, if our status as covenant influencers goes awry, look how that hurts others in our faith community. Look where God's people go in verse 10 and onward when Israel's leaders refuse to follow him. And look at the spiritual and moral decline of churches today whose leaders don't follow Jesus. Do you see how vital our commitment with God is in our personal journey of being discipled and discipling others? And how we cannot do this on our own without the help of someone who can. We see in verse 10, instead of committing to our covenant before God and the covenant community, we can be like the Israelites and be faithless to one another. We can cancel the truths passed down to us by our ancestors that God is our Father who created us and knows us as his children. It's like, remember when you were a kid and you ran away from home? Remember how exhilarating it felt to think you had the freedom to do whatever you want and whenever, whenever you want? But those aspirations vanished when your bed and your food don't run away with you, nor do the comforts that only your parents provide for you. And on your return journey, you remember why doing your chores matters, why honoring your parents matters. This little example points us to why it is so Important to treasure our identity in this commitment, how God's commitment to us is to be committed to Him. His commitment calls us back to where we cultivate our relationship with Him through our tithes to the ministries He has ordained, or the talents of serving in the ways He has wired us, or simply spending time with Him, and being reminded we are not runaways anymore. But in verse 11, the runaway people of God left behind their responsibilities like a child trashing their home. And things get even darker in verse 11 when the people marry the daughters of of a foreign God. God's people have broken the seventh commandment by entering into illicit relationships with other nations and worshiping their gods and divorcing their spouses, their wife by covenant. So don't let the people's weeping over God, rejecting their offerings, fool you in verse 16, nor their question, why does he not accept them? In verse 14, not only do their tears fail to hide their adultery in verse 14, but it exposes their sin of groaning and complaining to God. Their tactics of concealing hypocrisy may fool others, but not our God, who was witness between you and the life and the wife of your youth. We see in our passage, God confronts Israel's sin and today he has given us his spirit and his word to confront sin in others. As part of my pastoral residency, I recently attended a training specifically on confronting unrepentant sin in the church. This training covered the sin that a Christian knows they are doing and others may know they are doing, but the Christian is is unwilling to repent to God and those they have hurt. And one of the biggest reasons why it is hard for us to confront sin is that it is hard to see the upside. There are so many consequences if we choose to approach someone over their sin, we fear upsetting them or those closest to them. And we want to avoid more conflict than already exists. You may play the confrontation out in your mind and conclude that there's no upside. When we confront sin, there's always that potential. It is not going to go well. It can be incredibly messy and complex. But let me tell you, it is worth it for the sake of our commitment with God and with one another. God knows it was worth it to confront Israel with their sin, but not only to confront, but to reconcile them through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus came not to leave sin alone and and do nothing about it, hoping that it just works itself out. No, Jesus came to do the work of taking our sins away, of restoring our commitment with God for us as individuals and also to restore the marriages and families and relationships that make up the church because Jesus keeps the commitment so that we can too. The way Jesus shows his commitment is saving us from our sins that weary God. Because in their question, verse 17 here, the people question, how have we wearied him? This is not a question of concern about God's well-being, but a challenge to God being good. You need to see the people's twisting of holiness into sin and twisting good into evil would cause God to be weary of them. But don't think For a moment, somehow God's weariness is debilitating his power and authority to right our wrongs. We saw back in chapter 1, verse 13, that weariness is debilitating us because sin debilitates us. This is not the case with God. He is revealing himself to us, and specifically, how he cannot stand sin, he will not tolerate it, and he will uphold his covenant through it all. So, God is very present in enacting his justice because the answer to their question, where is the God of justice, is God's justice is upon them. But 400 years after Malachi was written, we see Jesus dealt with this greatest injustice. The poor first century Jewish man who lived as a member of an oppressed ethnic group and died at the hands of an imperial regime truly was the savior of the world, the one who showed us what love is by laying down his life for us. This was to fulfill what the prophets talked about. The day when God would restore his covenant with us in spite of our failures, the prophets called it the new covenant. And what is so interesting about Jesus is he is the faithful Israelite who obeyed the terms of the covenant. He is the godly offspring who always had the spirit in his union with God. He is the one who took off our garments of violence so that we can put on the new self We see in Ephesians 4, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. He is that Ephesians 4 uniform that we wear to show our loved ones whom we may have hurt that we are no longer violent or faithless or adulterers. And he is our perfect priest, helping us every step of the way and reconciling relationships we broke. Because Jesus is no mere human, but rather he is God who has become human. And God did this in order to be that committed covenant partner we failed to be. Through Jesus, God has opened the covenant door for anyone to enter and be in renewed covenant with him. And so when we remember the fears that we have about confronting people with their sin... We can remember Jesus. We can remember that confronting sin actually demonstrates a unique love Jesus has for the church and that we can have for the church. Can we all agree it is unloving to watch someone you love who is in open, unrepentant sin and do nothing? Can we also agree that if we were blind to our own sin, would we not want someone to confront us and call us back to Jesus? We would want that. But it's hard. It's hard to think about doing this, but we can rest in God who loves the church so much so that his spirit is at work in us, in our church, for our good. God wants good for us. We can delight in that. I've been teasing out this paradigm of duty versus delight and how Jesus came to renew both these things by showing how our duties in the commitment we have with him flow from our delight in him. To illustrate this, I want to share it with you a story that a friend shared with me. There once was a woman who was married twice during her life. During her first marriage, her first husband was demanded, demanding and required many things from her. In fact, he wrote a list of things he wanted her to do every day. This arrangement became a very oppressive environment for the woman, and it sucked the life out of her. Her goal in life simply became to not make her husband mad. At some point, this husband died, and the woman remarried, and her second husband was loving and kind, and she loved doing life with him. Sometime into her second marriage, the woman was in her attic, and she found the list of things her first husband had left her. She realized she was still doing all these things for her new husband, but it didn't feel burdensome or harsh anymore. She was doing these duties out of delight because her new husband loved her so much. She loved him. And her new husband was there for her, helping her, encouraging her at her side. So, River City Church, our commitment with God is like this beautiful second marriage. And we will find that we will practice the ways of Jesus more, like good prayer or good Bible reading, when it comes out of delight. If we only treat spiritual disciplines as duty, we will end up treating God like that first demanding husband. And that is not God's will for us. Living that second, renewed, married life is actually what it looks like to keep our commitment with God because Jesus keeps that commitment so that we can too. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.